Did a small village in Ethiopia actually have such a close encounter? People died? And then we travel to Brooklyn. The year is 1979, and two detectives are investigating a pair of ritualistic murders. But depending on the time of day, the detectives enter the apartment. Reality is wildly different. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. Hope you guys are having a great day too. Let's go ahead and move on with our first story though. So for our first story, hop in the Carpenter Copter. We are going for a ride. We are flying out to Ethiopia. Ethiopia. So we're going all the way over there. Imagine me making that noise for 8 to 10 hours, however long the trip is. We're going back to 1970 Ethiopia, specifically the village known as Salai Dario. This one is a brief one, but it has some weird implications. The helicopter, we appear back in time, we're flying. We're looking for a place to land. Land. Hop out. And right when we get there, we see everyone in town just kind of milling about. This is August 7th. 1970. People are just kind of walking around, minding their own business. There's not much to do. It's 1970. Music sucked. There's no such thing as video games. Pong might have been around. Plus, we're in Ethiopia, so I don't think they were really clamoring for the latest entertainment system. They're more worried about another regional war breaking out. They're standing in the village. They're not just standing there. They're doing stuff. Washing and, like, hawking goods and all that stuff. One side of the village, there's a forest. And you see people kind of stop, and they're like, huh? Huh? What? what? And they're kind of looking off towards the forest, and, and basically what's getting everyone's attention is a noise. And everyone's kind of looking around, they're like, what? Where's that coming from? We don't have any machinery that big here, it's really loud. And people kind of start to realize that it's coming from a forest nearby, and the noise is getting louder. And louder and louder. To the point that people can't really even talk over each other. It's Okay, I don't... <laughs> that might be an exaggeration. It's louder, though. It's so loud, their ears start bleeding. It's loud, okay? <laughs> that, I'll admit that I exaggerated a bit there. The point is, loud noise coming from the forest. Nobody knows what it is. Then... This big red ball starts to kind of float out of the forest. <laughs> Now, that sound of it accelerating or taking off, it's not going up into the sky and getting like a little twinkly dot. It's headed right towards the village. Now, this is an interesting UFO encounter because what happens is it's so scary. Basically, people weren't like, hmm, well, based on the height of that tree, it would have to be at least 150 feet. People really weren't trying to pay attention to what was going on. They're trying not to die. So we don't have any measurements of this thing, but what it's described is, is a big red glowing ball that immediately begins to come charging towards the village. And the first thing it does is, as it gets close to the buildings, these houses, they're all brick and mortar houses here, it doesn't change direction. It begins to smash into house after house after house, like Superman, just like bashing through stuff. It then leaves town... <sighs> Then turns around and starts coming back. And now people, the first time people were a little worried and a little mystified as to what was going on. But the second it stops and starts headed back, 
It's no longer a mystery. It's it's death incarnate. It's coming back. Now, this thing is so hot. Asphalt is bubbling. So, good luck running. I mean, I guess you could just run on the dirt, but... Actually, that's interesting. Remind me. You can't because you're you're just listening to this, but I'll try to remind myself. The asphalt is bubbling. Blah, blah, blah. Utensils are melting. But oddly enough, nothing catches on fire. The heat is incredibly intense. It can melt things, melt metals. But you match someone's like, oh, I just got braces today. <laughs> In total pain, the thing. I wonder what happened if you got braces right before Hiroshima. That would have sucked. Well, so would the the... You know, just the nuclear bomb is about it. Anyways, the thing spins around. It comes back the other direction and hits a giant stone wall. <laughs> it's almost like this thing wanted to destroy stuff. And then after it smashes into a stone wall, it just flies out to the tree line and disappears. And then people kind of make their way out of the rubble. Some guy's just face is covered in soot. He's like, that was close. That was comically close. All I do is like, my face is covered in soot. That's nothing. But then he looks and there's like a bunch of really injured people. Eight people got injured because of this attack incident. One little girl was killed. So this is the thing. I've heard one estimate that the event lasted 10 minutes long. So the ball from the point of the noise first starting to the ball leaving was a total of 10 minutes. It's interesting that there's no estimation of how big this thing is there's no description of it other than a red ball 10 minutes is a long time it could have been making noise for nine and a half minutes and then it was 30 seconds for it flying around who knows but there, that that's a the thing there's not a lot of details there are however photographs so this is where it gets weird so i could this story took place 50 years ago i could take a photograph of a pothole from 1970 and have a two people kind of staring and looking at the pothole and bring it to you and say, hey, uh, this is proof that aliens landed and they totally left a pothole in my front yard and homeowners association <laughs> tried to make me fix it. And I was like, no, sorry, I could do that. And uh, some people would believe it. Honestly, I'm starting to learn a lot of people would believe it. If I was trying to pull a scam or some sort of internet hoax, I could find photographs of someplace in Africa with a smashed house and go aliens attacked here and come up with this narrative but this one was actually investigated by Jacques Vallee and J. Allen Hynek they're both huge UFOologists Hynek worked with Blue Book and Jacques Vallee he's he's an expert guy in UFO we talked about him earlier in the week and I think I actually mispronounced his name but he's the one who believes that aliens are interdimensional and they appear as the other of society so in old times they were fairies and then as our technology advanced they became they're all they will always be more advanced than than where we're at right now that's kind of how they appear it's it's some sort of other entity so that adds a little bit of credibility to it and i always think it's interesting when these stories that seem fairly simple no aliens walking around no message of universal brotherhood or clean up the environment or nothing like that just a phenomenon that comes out of nowhere and again, it's interesting, a forest, which is kind of where faithful and supernatural things tend to live. Something shoots out of the forest, smashes a town, and then goes back into the forest. Very, very simple story. It's quite obscure. Not a lot of people know about this one, even though it resulted in somebody dying. One, it happened in Ethiopia, so that's not going to get a lot of coverage. Probably didn't even get a lot of coverage then in the news, because it was so bizarre, and they used to not media used to hate covering UFO stuff. But even now, it's just kind of been lost to time. Very, very bizarre UFO story. And it's one of those things like, if UFOs were abducting people and doing studies on them, that's terrifying. But if they're shooting out of the woods and destroying human civilization, that's an act of war. So, yeah, it's definitely one that I think should be 
investigated more, but at this point it's 50 years old. How much more could you really look into it? I guess you could travel out there if that village is still there. But I'm sure they've... I don't think you'd be able to go, hmm, based on the way... I'm sure they fixed the houses. I don't think a forensic team can go out there and be like, oh, look it, it does look like a red orb. But yeah, so interesting story nonetheless. Let's go ahead, though, and move on to our next story. Now, for our next story, we're leaving behind Ethiopia. They're like, can you help us repair our stuff with your magical helicopter? We're like, what? Can't hear you. Helicopter's not even on yet. You're like, Jason, you jerk. I was like, we can't mess with the timeline. Hitting the switches. They're like, come on, dude, please, please. All of our forks are melted. We just want to eat some Ego waffles. And I'm like, what? Can't hear you. Then I turn on the helicopter. Fly away. So now we're going to go nine years into the future. Not 2029, but nine years into the future from 1970. You're all excited. You're like, yeah, I want to know. I want to know the future. I'm like, nope. We're in the year 1979. Three years after I was born. So imagine a three-year-old Jason pooping his diaper for the rest of this. Was I wasn't wearing diapers when I was three. I don't think I was. Three-year-olds don't wear diapers, right? Doesn't matter. Just don't. So don't imagine me in a diaper. Or don't. Yeah, that's gross. Don't imagine that. Anyways. Helicopter. We're flying over West Patterson, New Jersey. Nowadays, it's known as Woodland Park. But back then, it was West Patterson, New Jersey. So we're in West Patterson, New Jersey. December 16th, 1979. There's a boy walking his dog. Is there anything more wholesome than that? He's walking down the street with his dog. We're pretending to jog. We're just standing in place waiting for him to make this discovery. We're both wearing Adidas tracksuits. We're the ones that inspire the mob to start wearing them. I bet you didn't know that. We're wearing our Adidas tracksuits. And we see this boy walk and we're jogging in place. And he's looking at us. He's like, that's weird. Why aren't those guys moving? It seems like they're pretending to jog. But then he turns and he looks on the opposite side of the road. And he sees two lumps just laying there. Now, it's New Jersey. The mob is basically constantly dumping bodies. This kid was probably savvy enough to go, I'm not going to go see what's in the lumps. I'm pretty sure I know what's in the lumps. This six foot tall and five foot six lump. Pretty sure what's in him. He goes home. Parents call the police. Cops show up. Howard Green, 51 years old. Carol Marin, 33 years old. A couple found dead on the side of the road. Cops throw him in the ambulance. Woo, woo, woo. Take him to the hospital. Doctor goes, yeah, they're dead. <laughs> Take him to the morgue. And at the morgue, they begin doing their autopsy. Autopsy doctor's like putting on their gloves. Now we're in the autopsy room. We're wearing a disguise. We're both autopsy doctors, and they keep asking us to hand them tools, and we're like, uh, they're like, can I have a scalpel? We give them, like, a Phillips screwdriver. But it's New Jersey, so they just assume everyone's incompetent over there anyway, so no one even gets that we're imposters. We're watching this coroner doing these autopsies, right? And he's cutting these dudes open. And this is what he he comes up with. He's like, look it. We noticed that Howard's head, the left side of his head was bashed in probably by a bat, some sort of blunt object. Pipe, maybe? Imagine Donkey Kong coming after this guy. Wait, did he use pipes? What What gruesome world is that? Donkey Kong. Mario's trying to save that chick. And then Donkey Kong swings a lead pipe and just collapses his skull. What get Mario had pipes. It doesn't matter. Pipes. The coroner looks at us and he's like, who the hell is Donkey Kong? This is 1979. He doesn't know. Guy's head is bashed in the left side of the head. And... Here, look at this. He starts poking Carol, Carol's wound as well. Bashed in left side of the head. Now, if you look at this, I'm going to show you this. 
Oh, also, listeners, uh, don't don't <laughs> don't be eating anything right now. I guess you might have clued in that this is going to be an autopsy segment, but yeah, don't eat anything. The coroner goes, "Now look at the one of the the their, the left side of the head was bashed in so much the eyeball popped out. This is all relevant. This isn't just me being gory. The eyeball popped out, and then they stabbed the other eyeball out on both bodies. So both bodies, left side of the head smashed in, both bodies, eyeballs removed." Both of them had their ears sliced, not cut off, but sliced like a tip off the top. And here's the weirdest thing. Dude, turns on a light. We have the light on the whole time. This is a special dramatic light, like a spotlight. In each hand, so both Howard and Carol, both of their hands, and in, in all four of their hands, there's a clump of hair. So if I get murdered, and I'm going to try to like pull out somebody's hair, right? I'm like, oh no, I'm fighting Jason Statham. He has no hair. I can grab a clump of hair out of someone other than Jason Statham. And then when I die, which is unrealistic, but just for the sake of the narrative, when this person actually kills me, and then the cops can go, oh, we have hair, they can test. So that would be your initial thing. Oh, but what were they fighting, Sasquatch? How do they both get clumps of hair in both hands? So people start to go, this must be some sort of ritual. Like, the bodies were not only killed... They were both killed with a blow to the left side of the head. They both had all their eyes cut out. They both had their ears sliced. And now in each hand is a clump of hair. A total ritual. The clump of hair, you would imagine, was done post-mortem. Because it wouldn't be like, hey, put your hands up. I've got this gun to the back of your head. Okay, now I'm going to put hair in your hands. You'd be like, what? What are you talking about? No, no, hold the hair in your hands. And now you're holding it. And then they're slicing your ears. You're like, ah, can I drop the hair? They're like, no, keep holding the hair. I'm assuming the hair was put in post-mortem. And this is always an interesting distinction. When the bodies were found, depending on who you get your news from, either there was no blood in the body or almost no blood in the body. Huge difference. And that's why, like, cattle mutilation stuff, people always go, the bodies were completely drained of blood. And then when you look at the initial reports, the reports in the mainstream media, they say almost drained of blood. Huge difference. Massive difference between almost and all. What's almost? 30% of the blood strain? 80% of the blood strain? 90% of the... What's almost? All means there's not a single drop. Not a single drop. And when you look at cattle mutilation stories, you go back to the original stories as they were published in the 1980s. Almost all the blood. Same thing with 9-11. There's a big difference between free fall speed and near free fall speed. One means the buildings were brought down by internal explosions. The other one is they were brought down through structural damage. Near freefall speed is not the same as freefall speed. They're not even close. Almost all the blood is not close to all of the blood. Almost all the blood is realistic. All of the blood, not a single drop of blood in the body, is fantastical. But anyways, so the point is is that these people didn't have a lot of blood in them. And I think we're obviously going to go from that monologue. They had almost no blood in them, but they did have some blood. Because again, what did they do? Pull it out each vein and just, you know, spit the blood out and then put the vein back in and then pull out an aorta and go. There was blood in the body, obviously, but there was less blood than was to be expected. So who were these people? Well, he was a cab driver. She was a secretary, not his secretary. They were in a relationship. They were dating. And apparently one of the theories was that carol was a either a kind of a hobbyist freelance investigator of the paranormal kind of like this show or like you may be as well or she was a 
more of a journalist, or she was just curious about a group known as the OTO, which is a very, very famous church. It's the Ordo Templi Orientis. It's um, Aleister Crowley's church. And she was asking people around New York about it, walking up to people on the street, hey, do you know about OTO? She was ta- I don't know if she was doing that, but she was definitely... Inve- okay, before I say definitely, this is one of the stories, one of the scenarios, as she was investigating this church, there's this author named Maury Terry. Maury Terry. He wrote a book I read years ago called Ultimate Evil. You guys might actually be into it. I remember it really scared me, actually, as a kid. It's called Ultimate Evil, The Truth About the Cult Murders, Son of Sam and Beyond. I read it when I was probably like 14 or 15 years old. It really goes into the mindset of the 80s and the satanic panic and how cults... We were talking about that on yesterday's episode, or two episodes ago, about how cult, satanic panic, all this stuff was taking over. But he basically... His claim is that almost every serial killer is actually an agent of a satanic cult. The Son of Sam specifically was just a member of a larger group of serial killers that were all working for the advancement of Satan and his unholy plans. And and Son of Sam went to jail, but the cult is still out there. Very, very common, very common conspiracy theory. But um, it's funny because I read it and I remember it really kind of disturbed me. And and you can buy it now. It's like 30 bucks. It's a collector's item. It was a very, very well, if I remember correctly, well-written book. A little out of my age range when I was reading it, but I definitely recommend picking it up. He says he got a letter from an anonymous source saying, it says this, Dear Mar- Dear Maury Terry, please look into this double killing. Carol was asking people about the OTO a year prior to the murders. I can't accept that the people responsible for this are still walking around free. And then it kind of goes on and saying this is this is why it's anonymous. And that's the thing, walking around free. No one's ever been caught for this crime. This and it's so that's all fairly typical. It's horrible. Two people murdered, never being caught, possibly some sort of ritual slain. These are all things that we see that are common. That's not why I wanted to cover this story. That's not why I wanted to cover this story. I wanted to cover this story because the investigation is flat out bizarre. You can this can be attributed to one of two things. This can be attributed to there's Satan worshippers in high level places. There's like evil Satan, not like Church of Satan people who just use Satan as a as like basically a placeholder to kind of troll Christians, and it's just a humanist religion. I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about like what you think of when you think of a satanic cult, an evil human worshiping cult. The story can be played out. You can think about it this one of two ways. One, that there are Satan worshippers and high levels of power that are stymieing this investigation from the get-go. Or something darker. We'll get to darker in a second. First off, these two bodies are found obviously murdered. There's no question that this is a suicide or a murder-suicide. This is obviously a case where these people have been murdered. We know they live in Brooklyn. Their bodies were found in West Patterson, New Jersey. Uh, Some time passes. This is reported in the news. The police show up. They do the bodies. They do the autopsy. A little bit of time passes. And then the police realize no one's investigating it. Because the police in Brooklyn go, oh, this is a a New Jersey case. West Patterson police will take care of this. The West Patterson police go, well, yeah, yeah, we found the bodies here. But Brooklyn must be investigating this. And and nobody investigated this for a couple days. Which is absolutely bizarre. I get it. I remember once my car was stolen and I lived right on the boundary of Sacramento Metro Police and the Sheriff's Department. And it took me maybe three hours just to get someone to come out because they kept saying, not our jurisdiction. I was right on the line. 
I get that for a stolen car. But two people brutally murdered. No question they were murdered. And people, they weren't even following it up. Assuming the other group was following it up. And just going about their business. And the prosecutor's office, too, was kind of like, oh, I'm sure someone's looking into it. So totally starts to fall through the cracks. Now, that isn't, you can't always assume, a lot of times, a lot of times incompetence is mistaken as evil, right? A lot of times people do stuff that you can go, what, you're being sinister? No, they're just stupid. Like, that's a stupid decision to just assume someone else is investigating a double murder. For all you know, it's going to be a wave of crime. It is a satanical, you don't know. But eventually, the two police departments realize that the other guy's not investigating it. They better investigate it. They better find out what's going on. So after a couple days, we have Detective James Devereaux, and he's in Brooklyn. He's investigating this case. Now, the first thing he does is he goes to the apartment. He knows where Howard lives. They're living together. They're a couple. He goes in the apartment, opens the door. There's satanic paraphernalia all over the place. Books, probably Ouija board. I mean, that's a pretty generic term, but we'll, I'm not going to say that there was like, you know, a, a de- decaying lamb skull, like a flayed body, but definitely books, probably some dark candles, maybe Ouija board, things like that. Satanic paraphernalia is how it's described, and, and books as well. But he's not really worried about these people's choice in literature. The place is bathed in blood. Blood on the walls, blood on the floor. Now, obviously, probably should have gotten here earlier. May have been able to get some prints, but no one else had been in the apartment. He says there's blood everywhere. A definite crime scene. Now we know where these people were murdered. It's right here. He then begins to interview residents, and there was a couple suspects, but none that would lead to the level of brutality. One was that the landlord, the place was rent-controlled, and the landlord wanted more money for the rent, but he couldn't charge more rent, so he may have killed a couple. That And people have always been like, that's... That may be the case, but that's a pretty flimsy, sure, I want an extra $500, so I'm going to ritualistically murder. And where did he get the hair? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it definitely seemed like it was an organized cult hit. The other one was one of the neighbors said that he used to drain the blood from mice as a hobby. He did it to impress his girlfriend. And he was a suspect for a while because, you know, the, <laughs> the killing of mice. But his alibi was he was on a, quote, hitchhiking holiday. He wasn't even in town. Which, tip to you if you are a killer looking for an alibi, being a hitchhiker is a terrible alibi. But he, and he had been tracked down. This neighbor had got tracked down 20 years later by the media and said, hey, because every so often this anniversary comes up and some reporter goes, what? This case has never been solved and they, they try to track these people down. And he goes, I wasn't there. I was on a hitchhiking holiday. I was out of town. I, I was never arrested for it. I definitely didn't do it. I did drain the blood from mice, but I didn't... There's a huge difference between that. What if the hair in their hands were mice hair? But, I don't know. That would be like just tiny fibers. You wouldn't even know. He's cleared. The landlord's cleared. The Brooklyn, like, cold case division, they're not investigating this either. So that's weird. So then you go, hmm, maybe it's like... It is like this satanic group that's being like, don't investigate this. Someone else is investigating this. Just let it drop, let it drop. And every so often a journalist pops up or a podcast pops up that covers it. But again, that's not even the weirdest thing. Because the idea of someone controlling the strings behind... As much as I poo-poo on something as high level as the Illuminati, I think that's definitely possible at a city or county level. Maybe state. Worldwide, no. It's absolutely ridiculous. 
There's just too many factors and too many different governments and too many thought processes going on. But a city-level Illuminati, 100% believable. County-level Illuminati, you betcha. The world, it's a little bit more difficult. But now we're going to go, we have, that was all the Brooklyn investigation. The West Patterson Police Department, though, his name was Joseph Lambert. He ends up being interviewed years later by journalists who are talking about this story still. And Joseph Lambert goes, he's, he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that horrible story. Um, what do you want to know about it? And the journalist is kind of talking about it, saying, oh, yeah, you know, he said that he went into the apartment and then he interviewed all these people in the house. And, and Detective Joseph Lambert goes, no, I went to that apartment. I went to that apartment. I don't know if I went to the apartment shortly before or shortly after. But in the course of it, yes, we did drop the ball on it. We thought they were taking care of it. But once I realized that, no one was investigating it. I went to the apartment, and that apartment was spotless. There wasn't a drop of blood on the place. There were no books, no satanic books, nothing like that. I walked in the apartment, processed it. They didn't look like anyone was murdered there. Didn't look suspicious at all. I don't think they were murdered there. I think they were probably murdered in other location. Could have been ritualistic, could have been mob, could have been a whole bunch of stuff. But yeah, the case has gone cold. We never caught the people. Nothing like it's ever happened again. It's a tragedy, but that dude is not accurate. That didn't happen. So you go, Jason. Isn't that proof that there was a high-level thing, like this intrepid Brooklyn police officer kicks down a door, sees this blood, sees all this stuff, reports it to his superiors. It gets up to the satanic cult, and they're wringing their hands, going like, oh, no, all secret hideout's been found. And they send down a clean crew, and they remove select books from the library and clean every single drop of blood up and do all of that before another cop just happens to stumble in there or anyone else in the apartment complex is notices a bunch of people coming in and out with bloody bo- bloody boxes full of books. I am going to have an alternate solution, a darker reason behind this. One, I don't think the OTO had anything to do with it because they've been investigated. I can guarantee you a thousand people are looking into them right now. They are normie tier conspiracy level stuff oto people are always looking into them so if you if they wanted to spend their time taking out everyone who ever investigated the oto they would have to buy stock in bullet companies and they'd make a fortune because you'd have to do it all the time so i don't think they had anything to do with them could be an offshoot i don't know but i think that these people were ritualistically murdered i do think these people were murdered in a ritualistic way absolutely but here's my theory they were killed and it was a ritual was performed while they were being killed. And what that ritual did was make this murder unsolvable. Because not only did it basically change, assuming both of these detectives are telling the truth, it basically shifted a room, the reality of a room, where one person can walk in and it is full of blood and satanic paraphernalia, and someone else can walk into that room and it's the exact opposite. Not full of blood, and no satanic paraphernalia. It creates some sort of... The ritual creates some sort of psychic wave that makes everyone go, ah, someone else is handling it. Someone else is handling it. Someone else is handling it. And to this day, the Brooklyn Cold Case Division just doesn't even investigate it. Ah, it's nothing. It's definitely something. Two people brutally murdered and never been solved. And to this day, people aren't looking into it. The only people who are looking into it is the occasional journalist. Imagine if you had that ability. Imagine if you had the ability to not only kill people in such a way, perform a ritual during the murder, that it would make it impossible for you to be caught 
for that crime. To even be suspected. Whenever someone kind of looks into it, they just kind of forget. People of importance, at least. You see, the journalists would be allowed to remember. Podcasters would be allowed to remember. So we could keep talking about the story. Maybe this is part of the ritual as well. But I just find it very interesting, the idea that two people can walk into a room, even if it's a couple days apart, you shouldn't have that radical of a difference, without some notable activity taking place. An apartment full of blood, and then an apartment with no blood in it. That just doesn't pass the smell test. One of them may be lying, one of the detectives may be part of this conspiracy, again, I don't think so. I think the most odd thing about this story is this. We know these people were murdered, that's a fact. They appear to have been murdered in a ritualistic way. I don't really think you can argue that. The hair in each hand, each wounds are the same, the slicing, the 30 stab wounds. I don't think I mentioned that. Each body was stabbed 30 times after having their head smashed in. Very, very ritualistic. And I think the ritual, they were being killed for a specific reason. Maybe they were getting too close to investigating an offshoot of the OTO. Maybe they had stumbled across some other cult. Maybe their paranormal research took them to a very, very dangerous place. So they were murdered. But I think the ritual of the murder wasn't like the mob saying, cut out their tongues so they said too much type of thing. In the, We'll put on our conspiracy caps for a second here, our fantasy hats. Two amateur investigators looking for the truth stumble across a cult. 1970s, there were cults everywhere. But this cult actually knew a little bit of the truth. A little bit of the secrets of the dark magic. The secrets that so many other cults looked for. They realized the perfect way to take out their enemies. If they are killed performing this ritual, they could get away with murder. Slice the ears. Gouge the eyes out. Bash in the left side of the head. This ritual made it so law enforcement investigators were searching through a cloud. Oh, someone else is looking into it. Someone else will take care of it. What? Wait, no one's doing that? That's weird. Why did I assume? Oh, yeah, no, no, I'll take care of it, Sergeant. I, I just assume someone else is taking care of it. And you could have evidence literally disappear, depending on when you entered a room. Confusion. Chaos. Mystery. A ritual that was successful because the killers were never caught. And in this world where dark magic is a reality, and a killer or group of killers can take two lives and make it so confusing for the investigators that they just give up, who's to say that killer isn't still operating out there, but has now perfected it to the point that the ritual can be done so precisely that they can take a human life, and within a day or two, people won't even remember the victim existed. Someone may have stumbled across one of the dark secrets of the universe and become a practitioner of wicked magic. Highly unlikely, but what if our skepticism is only because the rituals work? DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. Twitter is at DeadRabbitRadio. DeadRabbitRadio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Hey, 